This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, are my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Adrian and Doug. Gang, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hey, all you mutant goons, are you ready to shit your pants with some kid alien films? Hi, mutant goons. I hope you guys have been enjoying our 2001 Space Augusty month. I've been loving it. Honestly, every single day is a little bit frustrating for me, though, because every day I encounter a new alien movie, where I'm like, fuck, we could have done this, too. Oh, there's so many good ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's just too many of them to do in, in what is it, four weeks? You know what I mean? Like, that's only four movies or so. But I think Species 2 is the one that really opened a lot of people's eyes and was like, whoa, this is a crazy movie. Yeah, I talked to a lot of people on Instagram who, like, had it in their collection, but then had never seen it. And so I was like, no, 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 you, you have to see it. And made sure that I added the caveat, like, whoa, it is horrifying. It is not the jauntiness of the first one. And that's kind of the theme that we're working with here this week. So we're going to take some childhood classics and turn them into horror icons. So your family friendly alien no longer. And so one of the things we wanted to compare it to, I think a, a great benchmark is Critters. We were talking about that. It can be cheeky and fun, but it's also horrifying. And so when we're talking about, you know, rejiggering these movies to make them horror, we're not just going to be like, oh, and then he starts fist fucking his mom to death. No, 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 no. It's just fun and campy. And so that's the tone. So Doug Critters is one of your favorite movies of all time, right? Yeah. And the funny thing is, I actually think Critters Critters scared the shit out of me as a kid. And I blame my grandma for that. She used to watch it over and I used to watch it over and over and over again. The first movie. And yeah, I mean, the guy gets his fingers bitten off. People are eaten alive under a car. You know what I mean? It's I was actually surprised it was PG-13 yep. when I finally got the tape. I'm like, oh, I thought this was like an R-rated horror movie because you know, at least with killer clowns, you know, that that's understandable because that's like, oh, you know, again, turning the cotton candy, it's goofy. But the first Critters is very mean spirited. And the effects, I think the kind of camp element of them get it more in the PG-13. For the those of you who would like to waste money, the Patreon bonus episode for this month is The Blob. And rewatching that, I was like, holy shit, this is so delicious and good and gory. But what's funny is they could have just fucking phoned that in and gotten it to be a fucking G rating. When you think about it, a goop monster that eats shit, that's Kirby from Kirby's Dreamland. Mm-hmm. Well, with the blob, that gave a lot of people uh, probably nightmares, too. Like, how can you make something so scary, yet it's something so Looney Tunes like where the guy's getting sucked down the sink drain. I'm like, and you, and you see like the <laughs> right? thing, but it's scary as a kid. You're like, holy shit, I don't want to stick my hand down the disposal. And what I love about the blob, you know, we'll get into it on the bonus, but my favorite HP Lovecraft story is the Colorado space. We even talked about doing that this month, but obviously there's some nefariousness with one Richard Stanley, and I don't want to support that. I do support Spectre Vision. So, you know, that being said, I love the fact that you have an antagonist who you don't know its motivation. You don't know its wants and desires. You don't know its needs. And so the fact that it's so amorphous is truly horrifying and alien. Everything that we always see in these family-friendly horror movies, or excuse me, family-friendly sci-fi movies, it's always like, oh, I need Reese's Pieces. I need Skittles. It's all very relative to the human experience, which makes it comforting. I think that one of the scarier ones is that Super 8 because that monster's like, bleh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and the thing. It's like, why did the thing want to just create images of other people? You know what I mean? Like the thing is one of the scariest ones, but I, but everyone, everyone and their mother and their father and their great grandpa and the grave, they've talked about the thing. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that's a frustrating one because it's one of my all-time favorite movies. I think that it's an amazing film and it's been 
ripped off or homaged in so many different ways. And at a certain point, you're like, what is there left to say? But, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you'd like us to talk about the thing, the only way I think I would really want to do that is a series retrospective talking about the game, just doing something that's a little bit more comparative analysis because it's so relied upon in modern media like there's an episode of the x-files i think it's ice where it's just the thing but bad and so you can find that all over the place yeah definitely and then the musical score too on that uh, that, that's with a lot of this here too i mean uh i was was sitting back watching uh critters again too and like the musical score it's it's a horror score like it's super scary and that's the same guy that scored the brave little toaster so you know what i mean it's it's that same kind of very eerie feeling so those of you who've seen critters and brave little toaster they go hand in hand perfect everybody all the listeners keep critters in the backdrop of your mind that's the tone we're working for and we're gonna fuck up the rest of it yeah yeah well no if you haven't seen it uh, shot factor has a really cool blue box set of one through four i mean the fourth movie sucks and they're in space so it should be fun yeah why is it not fun it just sucks and then then of course they made that show and the the movie just ignore those yeah just ignore them they're they're made by people who don't who had no love for the original critters i don't even know if that's necessarily that i think that it was just redone and repurposed four or five times and so it was just like the fact that it came out at all it was like limping across the finish line and so they might have gone into it with the best of intentions but it went from like youtube content to shutter content and all these things i mean that's a cursed production if we've ever seen one so Mm-hmm. You know, not that I'm apologizing for him because it's bad, but at least I don't think that it's as nefarious as some of the scum sucking pigs I see online. And speaking of scum sucking pigs, it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about next. I just figured it would sound like a great segue. I pick The Iron Giant for a movie that could very easily become a horror movie. God damn. Oh, with my Vin Diesel. Yeah. Makes me so happy. <laughs> Superman. Uh, okay. Firstly, I don't know about you, but the Iron Giant always made me cry. I, if I watched it today, I would just start crying. Like, it's really sad. So <laughs> it's already horrifying for me. I'm interested to see what, what other things make it even more horrifying for you guys. Yeah, well, I guess here's a little horrifying statement on the Iron Giant. I only seen it once. And when I remember seeing it, when I rewatched it again, I'm like, oh, where's the scene where the the, the deers like lick the guy filled with poop? And I always got confused. It was the scene. Uh, I, I always confused Iron Giant with Eight Crazy Nights. Oh, the animation style is super similar. Yeah, because I only seen the Iron Giant once. And I, I remember like, uh, where's this scene? Where's the scene with the Game Boy? I'm like, oh, that's Eight Crazy Nights. Holy shit. I'm going crazy. Have to shave the unibrow. Yeah, I'm all about that. But I mean, basically, the Iron Giant is horror. It's just at the 11th hour it veers. You know, if he doesn't get the bonk on the head, he's there to fucking take over the world. So I think that's an easy one. It's kind of phoning it in. But when you think about it, like imagine being the kid who finds the thing that ends the world. If Hugo, I think his name is, is lucky enough or cursed enough to live and have to like live with seeing everything destroyed, that would just be a psychological mindfuck and delicious to watch unfold. Is that my schadenfreude to think of somebody suffering? No, I'd say your analysis is critical. It's malignant. (laughs) (laughs) The PBS word. Dog, I'm very proud of you. Hey, I, you know how many Criterion Blu-ray commentaries I had to watch to <laughs> I think as a little kid when you're, well, how, when was it? When was the Iron Giant? Because I feel like I was, I was 99. older, 99. Okay. So I was at the age where I was not really, didn't care for cartoons at that point, but my brother 
got it and wanted to watch it. And so of course I sat and watched it and I was surprised by how abrasive it is for a children's movie. Is it a children's movie? I don't think it goes as far as like Ralph Bakshi in terms of like adult, but I think it's meant to go beyond your general like cutesy shit. Yeah, because I think that if like it, it's sort of along the lines of uh, like I wouldn't show a little kid the hunchback of Notre Dame. And the same reason that, you know, like Frodo in front of the fire and all of these, you know, like very terrifying images, despite the fact that it is a cartoon. I don't think it's very suitable for young children, like maybe like a 10 year old, but not a four year old. Well, the whole movie about that, that shows uh, it's like the Christianity way. It's like uh, the, the priest is mad at Asmerelda because he's like, you gave me a raging boner and I want to have sex with you, but you must burn because I've got an erection. <laughs> and also her dark gypsy skin set in him. He's being triggered by it. He's yeah. evil. That's one of the tough Disney movies. When you think about the ones like, how did this get made? Like, sure, The Lion King has a dark understory. It's 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 Hamlet, which is obviously a tragedy. So like some of them, you know, if you look at other ones, like especially if you look at like the Brothers Grimm or the original fables, it's like, oh, it's dark. But they do a really good job of making those like very lighthearted and fun. You know, you don't have Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty or what is it, Snow White have being impregnated in her sleep. That's not consent or fun or at all. But then when you get to Hunchback, it stays thematically really dark. They just happen to be singing, which is weird. Mm-hmm. And the singing gargoyle. Well, that's what I remember of Hunchback and Notre Dame. Burger King's toys. They always had the gargoyle toys. I'm like, that, that movie wasn't even about the fucking gargoyles. Yeah. Well, George Costanza was a gargoyle, wasn't he? So clearly <laughs> not a children's movie. <laughs> yeah, I was just waiting for him to come in. Eh. Eh, come on, Kramer. Where is it? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I know that that hasn't doesn't have anything to do with aliens. Can we can we move on to a different yeah. cartoon? If Pick we it. look at Lilo and Stitch, for instance, if we're going to talk about Disney, oh yeah, it gets a little more child friendly. But there is some like the aliens that are coming for him are disgusting. Have you seen the original sketches for Stitch? He had like a, a centipede body with all these long, creepy legs and stuff. Dude, fucking nightmare fuel. It's delightful. They should have had that. They obviously did this way to sell a cute little merchandise with backpacks in it. Yeah, honestly, that's what it comes down to is it's like, it, I don't think there's a really easy way to make that horrifying thing. I don't even think you can make a toy of it without spending, you know, a trillion dollars uh, on pieces and parts because it's just so complex. You're right. That reminds me. I haven't never seen a human centipede toy yet, so that would make sense. I love that you added the caveat of yet because McFarlane Toys listens to our show religiously and they're going to be like, hmm. Well, we better make the human centipede. Uh, let's get some brown paint and uh, some diarrhea stains. This will be. Oh, but you want to know what? That would probably sell out quick because a lot of sickos would probably buy it, including me. So. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like just the novelty of it. Like I'm sure you know, on the topic of Lilo and Stitch, you know, how they have like the hula girls for your dashboard. I'm sure they have something mm-hmm. like that for ass to mouth on your dashboard at some point. Oh, you never yeah. go ass to mouth. I did find the, the drawing. It is it is crazy. Oh my well, God. if you look at the other ones too, like the other characters were also much scarier that were then toned down to be a little bit more cutesy and family friendly. But think about it. You're harboring an alien fugitive. So you can take that two ways. Either he destroys them or, you know, the fact that he it's implied he's committed some acts of attempted genocide and stuff. What if she's harboring who is truly the harbinger of doom? They come to Earth to try and stop. They successfully kill off the bad guys. And then in doing that, Stitch takes over and destroys the world. That's a yeah. That's very possible. 
Yeah. Well, good for a stitch. Good for you. The thing is, is that, you know, we always look at the other as being so like horrible because it's not us, right? I think we talked about this before, but like, what if we're like the horrible things and they're coming to destroy us because we're just awful as a species? That's Prometheus. It could be like the cockroach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting a little like existential or whatever here. So let's just <laughs> Well, it's a good point because honestly, there's there's a lot of talk about that in astrobiology. If something was sophisticated enough to observe us, would they see us as being A worth visiting, B worth existing? I mean, there's a lot of legitimate questions. And especially if you know, we've talked about it even just talking about Colorado space. In terms of contextualizing like perception and society and motivation, all of these things, we have such an egocentric view in sci-fi. People want money. People want food. What if you have a race of aliens that photosynthesizes and they don't have to have a commodity system? You even talking about trading with them wouldn't logically follow. So there's so many like weird things that are intangible. And so you could see being judged very successfully and people be like, yeah, or you could be like, oh, you're not worth living. I'm going to scrape you out of this Petri dish and start Earth over again. Yeah. And, and it's something to be said, too, that why are all of these aliens and even for other movies that we're talking about, they always befriend children, right? Because children are the innocent. They're still, quote, innocent. I mean, Damien, obviously not. But I mean, children, <laughs> obviously, and then children are more accepting of them as well, because children have a, a tendency to not judge other people by how they, they look, right? Until they start learning to be, you know, prejudiced against things. So why are these, why are these, you know, creatures going after children? Plus they're gullible. So if you are trying to take over the world, why wouldn't you, you know, get a kid on your side and sort of kind of sneak around and get to where you need to go? Because nobody would think twice about a kid being somewhere like you'd be like, oh yeah, just go in there. It's not a big deal. And then Stitch gets in and destroys the planet, blows up the White House. I don't know. Unless you're a critter, you're trying to bite the kid's arm off and eat him. They're so cute. But it seems like the two the two most common ways for aliens to get information about humans are TV or children. Generally, when we watch you know sci-fi stuff, because TV is expository and kids don't know to reserve or keep secrets or be wary of no. the other. They just divulge. And so you could easily see that being the foot in the door yeah. to get the world domination. Mm-hmm. For sure. And also, I mean, an alien that can surf is a very dangerous alien. <laughs> I know it's good on water too. Unless you're selling uh, products for uh, McDonald's, you know, then they got advertising rights. <laughs> Let me ask you who you think would win a fight between Stitch and Gizmo on an island. Gizmo. Gizmo, he's on an island. Just go in the water and then you can multiply multiplicity. Yeah. yeah, just get wet and go fuck something up. Hey, that's what she said. Oh, oh. I'm pretty proud of that one. I knew I should never have said wet. <laughs> One that I've always wanted to talk about, it's very kind of in the vein of the Iron Giant one, would be Star Kid. My pitch for turning this into a horror classic, the kid is in the suit, the suit takes over, and he has to witness the genocide of his entire human race, and he feels culpable for doing it, even though he has no agency of his own, as he's just inside of this killing death machine does that give you a horror boner it does yeah it's like uh it's like robocop on crack yeah (laughs) Uh, 
Well, you know, but that's again, he's a kid. So is it more horrifying because it's a kid or would it be worse if it was an adult that got taken over like that? I think it's way more interesting if it's a kid, because I think Mm -hmm. that an adult can rationalize a bit and go, oh, well, people have inherent vices or inherently evil or it was me versus them or what have you. But just a kid being like, that was my mom and that was my school teacher. Now they're puddles of fluid on the sidewalk. Oh, my God, what have I done? But see, that would be good. It's like you didn't buy me that hot wheel, mom. Now (laughs) you're going to die. Yeah, I could see a kid doing that. Like, oh, you gave me an F in my paper. Bye. (laughs) Just going to take everybody out. Yeah, I've seen I've seen kids like that in real life, like real life Cartman's. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) funny enough, I just finished reading the X-Men story Schism, where Cade Kilgore, who's like a 12 year old kid, kills his dad and takes over like his empire and becomes the black king of the Hellfire Club. But I was like, man, this kid's awful. I just want him to die. And I was like, that's awful of me to think that a child should die. Am I a bad person? So I had my own little existential crisis. Now, let's see here. If you had a kid like Damien, would you would you want him to die? You can't ask me that, dude, because my kids might listen to this one day and they'll be like, my dad was going to kill me in my sleep or something. So I respectfully plead the fifth. Okay. All right. All right. All that <laughs> mumbo jumbo. Yeah, but you, you say those things, right? So like, I, it's so interesting because if we if we get into the omen for like two seconds, the father goes and has to do what he has to do, right? But do you think a woman could kill her own child? Well, there's movies like Prevenge and Stillborn yeah, and those ones that's that kind true. of get into it, but... Oh, Proxy. That's a good one. We'll see. But, you know, as far as like, I wouldn't be able to kill the kid. Like, you know, I'd be Rosemary's baby. I'd be pushing around the stroller. Okay, I'll raise the Antichrist. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's the Antichrist. He's got a little bit of mad He's not an but, alien, know. so it's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> speaking of giving birth to aliens, what about Prometheus? You get your little C-section and little pod. Do you do you nurture the squid creature or do you kill it with fire? Oh, that's Is that one. birth to you? Uh, oh. It's been a while since I've seen Prometheus. I remember she goes into that machine. Does she kill that little squid baby? Yeah. I don't I remember it getting cut out. So she does. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, well, I mean, at well, least it no, doesn't abortion. it grab the thing and then that's how you get the pseudo xenomorph at the end. I think I might be wrong. Just like you, I haven't seen it in a while. And even when I did, I didn't mm-hmm. follow the story. I just looked at the pretty pictures, and that's the only way to enjoy that movie. No, she leaves yeah. it in the thing, I remember. And I think it's she flopping does... around. Yeah. Yeah. God, now I have to watch that again because that was terrifying. But again, she she was kind of violated, and that's why she was pregnant with that thing in the first place. Yep. <laughs> We're gonna get into it. Right. They didn't have an alien condom that. or anything or lambskin. They really oh. used a lambskin condom. That's fucking gross. They're like, oh, just throw it in the washing machine when you're done. Luckily, I've been <laughs> vegan. Have I been vegan the entire time I've had sex? I think I have. So yeah. I don't think that would be in in line with my values system. They don't even sell those anymore, though, do they? You can still get them, but it's like putting a laundry dryer thing on your dick. Ew. And it's just gross. Yeah. I've never seen one. I've never used one. And I've never seen one. So I didn't think that was a thing. But I guess Doug, uh, Doug will tell us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, no, that's for a different time. Well, I saw on the packaging that it doesn't prevent against like HIV and stuff. I'm like, so what does it do? And so then I it was never a consideration. It's like a piece of sandpaper. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Just like going back to human centipede. there yes. Everything's connected. <laughs> so I guess it's like necro-bestial anal butt sex. I don't even know. Wow. Oh, my God. Like if you go the deep enough into the large intestine, it becomes a small intestine. <laughs> so, yeah, please don't use lambskin condoms, all you listeners out there, <laughs> while you're sitting down watching Mac and Me. Aww. Brings well, us to a next of- one. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so Mac and Me, I hate that movie. I forgot how much I hate that movie because I watched it yesterday. Love that movie so much. Oh, his mouth looks like an yeah. asshole. Like the whole time, I'm like, what kind of like dirty ass shit is this for a child? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's also the same director of Tammy and the T-Rex. So, you know, there's like, you know, hidden underlying kind of perversions on that. But the thing, the thing is, I think Mac and me would be a great movie. If they made it horror, they'd be eight. They would be sex doll aliens because they all have that O face. Like, oh, oh. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it's like you've come to the planet kink. Oh, how about this for a new title? We call it subhuman trafficking. That, that could work. Oh. Yeah, subhuman trafficking. Yeah, that works. Yeah. Starts with the yeah. little kids and then just... Or- Inhuman trafficking, but I didn't want to tread on Jack Kirby. Sorry. Sorry, Jack Kirby. Oh, man. But I mean, well, what other movie can you tell as like an alien sex doll uh, fetish uh, that's that sponsors McDonald's with Ronald McDonald in there? I mean, <laughs> and a dance number. Don't forget yeah. the dance number. Well, they're dancing around with their with their uh, large McDonald's drinks and their chicken nuggets on one side and uh, they're dancing on the table. Yeah, no, it's great. It's 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 an extended commercial. Yeah. I mean, it's the poor man's E.T. Like, let's just let's call it what it is. It's, it's like a spoof on E.T., right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at your background aid for you listeners out there. She's got the uh, E.T. in the milk crate, which is now somehow a TikTok thing with milk crates. But but it's funny. Every time that, that same look where they put the blanket over E.T., we do that to our dog. And we're like, oh, it's the Madre de Cita. Have you seen the Virgin Mary statue that's just a giant <laughs> vagina? Yeah, I see that. That's one. awesome. Yeah, it's like they have the little clit at the top, and then it open like, I'm like, yeah, oh, it's yeah. A vagina, right? <laughs> Hell yeah, way to own it, ladies. Well, she is the Virgin Mother. Maybe it's a common. T- well, I, whatever. Anyways, hey, I saw Jesus on the cross that turned into a transformer. I love people. You know, the the Old Testament's old, so like, let's and the New Testament's not even new anymore. So let's spice things up. Get some vagina monologue statues and some transformers and we'll throw a mac and me sex scene in the newest testament boom yeah and so i wouldn't be surprised if that that statue started bleeding like you always see in the sun news (laughs) (laughs) well because i remember like well then south park parodied it but i remember when people like oh my god the statue is crying blood well that's like remember the exorcist when her they defaced it the statue and the in the church and somebody put like yeah. his bloody tits like hanging off of Mary. <laughs> like, like, oh my God. <laughs> like, well, Hello. time to fire that new interior design. <laughs> Yoko Ono, I did not want you to do this to my church when I hired you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Yoko Ono, you can kill the Beatles, just don't kill the the Virgin Mary. <laughs> but yeah, so what else is horrifying about that? I think I think it's kind of creepy in the beginning, like when he's walking around the house with the kid in the sunglasses. So like, you know, remember every time he puts the sunglasses on and he sees him. So like, what if he's able to see like, like in um, what is that one with Barbara Crampton where they can see the aliens and the from beyond from beyond? Yeah, mm-hmm. like a Mac and me from beyond kind of thing. That'd be really cool. Yeah, I'm into that. And then another scary thing, too, is like when you uh, Mac and me, I, I don't even remember. I just call him Mac, but his family, like the dad. I'm like, is this how I look like I, when I walk around the house in the morning naked, like just my belly hanging out? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here's an idea. They're all very dry, which means that sex is probably not fun. So what if they all have detachable penises? So when the penis goes in, it can't come out again. And so it just gets plopped off 
and then absorbed. And that's why the dad and Mac don't have any noticeable dick bulge. That's that's horrifying in and of itself. Well, I thought they use their fingers. It's like they fuck each other's mouths with their fingers. Oh, wow. Something. I thought that was the E.T. thing, but I guess it's cest la vie. It's the same thing. Yeah, that's why they're stuck. Or case raw. face. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, the, why would Mac have it? Not have a penis, though. Like that guy's father, clearly slinging dick. I mean, <laughs> well, they call him Mac. I mean, you don't have a nickname like Mac unless you like. I thought it was Mac because of like McDonald's. Am I crazy? No. Oh no, that's what they call him, Big Mac. Um, cheese. It's the Mac Daddy. <laughs> I just hate that movie. Like I'm watching, like why is this? Why am I watching this movie? I just—it's on Prime, by the way. So if anybody wants to, it is yeah. Because I'm watching a really shitty VHS. Like the the lines are—it's in recorded in EP mode, so it's like an even slower version than that. Looks like a snuff film, but um, (laughs) it does. And so so the other thing with that too, it's like with Mac and Me. There's a Japanese laser disc. It's like an extended version. And there's a scene with the kid in the wheelchair where, like, in the finale. Uh, he gets shot up by the police yeah, and he dude. explodes. So sexy. <laughs> yeah, he's like in the wheelchair going like, uh, 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 and they get all the blood squibs going off. I'm like, man, they really just killed that kid. Oh my gosh, that's awful. It exists, you know, for people listening, go to YouTube, type in Mac and me, kid in wheelchair gets shot. Yep. And it's it's in there. It's awesome. So then they did try to make it a horror film. That makes sense. They did. Well, it's Stuart Raphael, so he's the one that did Tammy and the T-Rex. So, you know, I'm I'm waiting for them to release a gore cut of Mac and Me. <laughs> you know what I mean? We should okay. message the, the Corridor crew guys and have them do an R-rated Mac and Me. Oh, have you? They did the Willy Wonka and the James Bond and the Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. So that's those are amusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that kid also flies off a cliff in the regular cut. <laughs> it's a slow motion. She's like ah, and then this thing sinks. I'm like, you know, kid, you can just get out of your wheelchair and just. <laughs> and now he goes all the, down with the wheelchair and stuff. I'm Flop like, around I... like a fish <laughs> in the water. <laughs> That's honestly, it's one of the best like running gags is when Paul Rudd does his, oh yeah, I brought a clip on Conan O'Brien and it's just that clip over and over again. Oh, I forgot he mentioned that all yeah. the time on there. So, hey, there you go. So you're uh, Ant-Man and uh, what what did he play in uh, Halloween, the sixth one? Tommy what, what's his Jarvis? Name? Tommy no. Doyle. Tommy Doyle. Doyle. Tommy Doyle, yeah. Tommy Doyle, Tommy Jarvis, same difference. Exactly. <laughs> Both have been recast like five times at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know what's his play. Uh, Anthony Michael Hall's going to play him in the new one, so that should be interesting. Anthony Michael Hall. Oh wow, the new Tommy Doyle. Mm-hmm. I think they should have just brought Paul Rudd back because that would have made me so happy. I think they should have. Yeah, they really should have. They so. can't bring Paul Rudd back. He looks too goddamn young. They'd be like, "Why is this twenty-something next to Jamie Lee Curtis's grandma?" Because he is evil, just like Michael Myers, like the whole Thorn shit. He was like cursed. He's the curse of my whatever. Anyway, that whole thorn shit. See, that's that's so what bad. you could tell every <laughs> Halloween fan is just like, fuck, I have fatigue from explaining it. So it's, it's just that shit. Yeah, but it, I do like that one anyway. So I guess this is a good time to kind of like segue into E.T. because I feel like we're beating this one to death. What do you guys think? You just don't want to talk about Mac and me anymore. I don't. I hate that movie, but we could talk about Mac and me. What else would you like to say? I just want to continue the franchise where it's the detachable dick show. So from here on out, every single one of the movies we talk about has to incorporate detachable genitalia of some sort to make it inclusive. Well, I mean, Mac and me could have you've seen um, what's the, the Guillermo del Toro movie? The the water one, shape of water, shape of water. Yeah, but she's, 
Because remember, she's like, he's like, he doesn't have a penis. And he's like, yeah, he does. And then she's like, how does it open? Slit. <laughs> it's like a little automatic door at Walmart that pops up. Like, oh, huh. here comes. Oh, my God. <laughs> here comes the fish dick. <laughs> why, why don't we ever talk about that one? <laughs> that one won an Academy Award. I know. Like, I don't even know what to make of it. Like, after I watched it, I was just like, like, what do you make of that movie? I don't even know. Anyway, well, that's why all these fetishes over uh, what was what was that Disney movie that came out Zootopia? You know, I used to work at Disneyland back when they did the 60th anniversary. I was a photo pass guy there, and people had sexual fetishes with with like the Disney uh, with uh, those the fox and the bunny character when they came out. Like you know, kids would go and get car- pictures with the characters, but then there's be those people who are like, oh, get let me get a picture. Oh, here, hold my nutsack. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I blame the shape of water for this. No, don't do that. Rule 34, long preceded. Sh- Everybody leave the shape of water alone. I've only seen it once. I'm only going to see it once. But uh, it's cute that it exists. It's crazy that it exists. And you listen to Guillermo del Toro talk about it. It's beautiful. But then when you watch it, you're watching a lady fuck a fish. So, I mean. It's not just that. It's okay. I she think fuck it's a, a fish. good movie. I think it's a really good movie. She did. Where she oh, fucks yeah, a like fish. Too, yeah. He's not a fish. He's kind of like a like a, a hybrid or something. I don't know. He's not. He's a plug-in. He's not bad. Like, like you know, if I had to fuck a fish, like that would be the good fish, I guess. Right? Like that would be fine. One fish, two fish. Erection for you, fish. <laughs> and this, <laughs> I hate you. Hey. <laughs> what gets me is though is like I'm watching this with Dan. Of course, I'm making him watch it. And right <laughs> off the bat, she's like masturbating and. In the tub and dan's like what are you making dude laugh? that was a very interesting way to start the movie i know so it's like you already know that everything like that could have happened like already starting off that way so how much more is he gonna like push us over the edge she liked to get down and we'll see i'm trying to remember it's been a it's been a few years since i've seen it but i remember when she was masturbating in the in the tub was she signing that she's about to come she's like <laughs> Like, like, what do you say for that? I don't, I don't really know. Wow, who would you be citing for herself? Yeah, like I'm saying, oh, I'm about to come. I guess that's too much Pornhub. I don't know. Yeah, like nobody yells, "I'm gonna come" when they're doing it by themselves. Like, Uh, my neighbors do. (laughs) (laughs) What I love about that movie, when Guillermo del Toro, it's really interesting because he talks about like the failure, the pitfall of Le Bel and Le Bête the beauty and the beast is that the beast turns back into a man. She loves the guy, despite the fact that he's a beast. And then she gets everything. She gets the love of her life and she gets a normal guy. And so he's like, what if it's not that convenient? That was such like an interesting like transposition. And I really, really like that idea. But at the end of the day, I can't be that artsy fartsy. I still have to be like, that's a lady flicking her beam before she fucks a fish. And there's something with eggs. I don't know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> eggs. Well, I mean, she probably, you know, there, there's this, uh, game, well, back when I was in the military, we used to do a bunch of crazy stuff, but there was this one game that I remember some of the girls in the military would do called mermaid. And I'm wondering if this, this girl from shape of water would do the same thing. She used to get caviar, like those red fish eggs. You stick them in your vagina and you see how much you can hold in. And you kind of like just shake your legs and you have to try to hold in as much. And it's a little competition. It's like the game Toast. Oh, I've yeah. Never heard of Toast. I've talked about that, that if I had a vagina, I'd be competitive about it, whether it be traffic mm-hmm. cones or holding an amount of Skittles or something. You like, can't just put foreign objects up your cooch and not expect to get a yeast infection. I would or something put Purell gross. on it first. I'm not an you idiot. You can't stick Purell in your cooch. Like you can't just put things in there. Like, Well, I don't uh, have one. 
So don't ruin my dreams because my dream vagina can have dream cones in it. You do have a hole, so you can use that. Would you just stick it up your butt? Just go ahead and stick Skittles up there and see if it's like, seriously, like you can just stick things in your vagina. I mean, if I had a vagina, it would be easy, like a coin purse or something. (laughs) (laughs) People like you, Doug, are why nobody accepts cash in the COVID world because they're like, has that been in your vagina? Yeah. You didn't have a mask on your vagina, did you? Mm, well, it already smells like fish. So here you go. Shape of water money. <laughs> no. And on that note, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> All right. An abrupt about face. One that I have to talk about is a movie I love. Spaced Invaders. Have you guys seen Spaced Invaders? I, I'll be honest. I have not seen the full movie. I can't blame you. It is it is a smidgen too long, but there are some images in that movie that have stuck with me my whole fucking life. Like they have these like drone things. It's kind of like the sentry drone from Hoth in Empire Strikes Back that floats around and has insect legs. Kind of almost looks like a floating Gartham from the Dark Crystal. Fuck yeah, dude. That movie rips. There's so many weird inexplicably weird fucking things but i mean it's already so close to horror you just take out the yuck yucks and it's like there everything is creepy the creatures are creepy it's such a weird movie you can find it for free on youtube so i don't want to like get too far into it but i highly recommend spaced invaders all right cool yeah didn't uh the guy who did the guy who did the effects for chucky didn't he do the effects for spaced invaders or correct. someone like that yeah someone did that i remember always seeing it oh my yeah. god they were they look like what is it mars attacks kind of yeah they are yeah they are martians as well because they get the war of the worlds thing and then they come to earth and it's kind of a tired trope at this point but it's really well done in terms of like the visuals the story is kind of stupid and you know it's kind of that awkward when you're talking to animatronics in the early 90s like ninja turtles there's always like that odd slight delay when speaking to one another so there's that issue but i mean the dude who directed it also wrote it. He did, who was it, Dragonheart, all those goddamn sequels. He worked on Bill and Ted. He directed Angus, which we all know how much I love. So, yeah, big fan, even though it's kind of terrible. Uh, well, well, speaking of which, you know who would make a good alien? I was, I watched it again. My brother was over last week, and uh, we watched uh, Clifford. I'm like, Clifford would be a good alien. So good. The big red, like, the big red dog? Or? No, no, no. Uh, Clifford, the Martin. Martin oh, that, uh, God damn the, it. That, little... that movie, yeah. The one we literally watched together yes. less than a month ago. You don't yeah. remember Clifford. I do remember Clifford. He is he is very terrifying. So, yeah, he's also amazing. Yeah, you got to do those dance moves. Like, you know, how like Mac did the dancing on the table at uh, McDonald's. You got to get the Clifford dancers. Like, oh, my God. I have a great idea. I have a great idea to make that horror. So he's an alien, right? So he telepathically projects to everybody that he's a kid. But audio recordings, visual recordings, it's clearly Martin Short, who's like 38. And so people are like tracing their lives together, being like, who's this old man? What's going on? And then you find out that it's actually a creepy old man who's like the orphan, except he's taken all of Charles Grodin's organs and sold them in order to buy an engagement ring for a lady who's three times his his official age no because he actually in my scenario he's old so we'll say he's like 500 years old so that when he tries to get uncle girlfriend i lost it it's not funny anymore uh no no i was gonna say like, i always thought like rewatching clifford again i'm like he could be like an invader zim character like, oh, like yeah. oh here's how you have to replicate someone from earth and it's like this 10 year old boy 
And he's like, okay, so I have to replicate a 10 year old boy when he comes to earth. And he's just like, I'm trying to, I'm this old man. I just replicating what I learned from earth by this one video they sent me. That'd be amazing. Invader Zim is the funniest shit. Honestly, it's so well done. I've, I was never a Johnny the Homicidal Maniac guy, but I've always deeply loved Invader Zim. I loved them both. Yeah, no, Invader Zim, I think, st- well, the Invader Zim movies on Netflix, but I think that's that fits in with this to- topic too, kids alien show, but it's, it's a lot darker too yeah. than you, know, you think. And what's so funny is like some of the most grotesque elements are just like humans being humans, like when they're eating and stuff, how just fucking disgusting they look. It, I don't know. It's it's a fun, you know, turning the mirror on itself. But if you like Invader Zim, it's very like similar to Spaced Invaders in a lot of ways. They're dimwitted. They're aliens They have the you know aspirations of domination. And they have a very adorable little robot sidekick well it looks like i'll have to find space invaders and i think disney owns that now right or oh through i think so let me double check i thought it was buena vista originally i might be wrong but yeah it's because i remember the vhs tape always had the same logo that roger rabbit had on it so that's that's what i remember the most i'm like oh it's a disney thing or Ernest. i remember the Ernest movies had the same logo yeah it was distributed by buena vista yeah so i was right man i like being right it's touchstone Mm-hmm. There you go. So Disney owns the rights. Where, where's the Disney remake or the, uh, the fucking like, oh, we're going to go do a backstory on this one character and see they're not really bad. It's like their stupid Cruella shit. Oh, my God. My wife is so excited for it to drop next week. She's just like, OK. And she's like, you know, we, she's checked like three different times to see. And I'm like, fuck, I, I know I've made you watch a bunch of bad shit for this show. But come on. <laughs> don't, don't make me do this. Watch my Cruella. Yeah, I, I made her see the Green Knight. So it's only fair. I mean, it's a, it's out. It's on Disney Plus right now. Not for free. I'm not I'm yeah. not paying to see this thing. Thank you. Oh. 30, 30 bucks to charge it. No, get the fuck out fuck of here. Yeah. yeah, no, we we have it, but I did not pay for it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I got to get your goods. I don't want to watch it, though. I honestly like I just feel like Emma, whatever the fuck. Which one is she? Thompson? Uh, Stone? Um, Emma Stone, Stone whichever Watson. Watson, whatever. I fucking like. I think Sherlock. she's terrible. <sighs> Everything she's in, she plays the same thing. She does this weird thing with her mouth, and it just annoys the fuck out of me. And I'm like, there are so many. Like Elizabeth Debicki would have been the perfect Cruella. Like, why can't we just put her as Cruella? Because nobody knows how to spell Debicki. Well, look her up, and you'll be like, oh yeah, she's definitely Cruella, De- not this bitch over here. Debicki. Well, I still like Glenn Close as Cruella. I still, I'm oh, like, yeah, she's a, a great Cruella, yeah. yeah. Because she's she's good. The thing is with Emma Stone, like she's just playing. Firstly, like her, her accent is horrible, so that just annoys the fuck out of me. Like, why don't we just get a regular British actress or whatever Elizabeth Debicki is? And like she would, she's really tall and lanky, and that is Cruella. Cruella looks like she's had too many cigarettes, doesn't eat, she's a hot fucking mess. Definitely not Emma Stone. Honestly, though. I see the logic in your Debicki thing. It just my my problem when I look at her face is that it looks like she was drinking out of a straw and somebody photoshopped the straw out in every picture on Google <laughs> Images. <laughs> well, that'd be perfect because then she'd have the cigarette. That's how Cruella. Whatever. Well, I'm surprised. I really hope they make her smoke in this movie because I know Disney's like no smoking in any movie. Because I remember they did. A, if you watch Roger Rabbit on Disney Plus, it's like smoking. Hold on, the tobacco warning. Oh my god! And, and then I think they shortened down. Um, they trimmed down Betty Boop's cleavage or something like that on 
on the stream, which wow. is stupid because I, I have the original DVD and I'm like, yeah, I, they go back in there and they censor it. it pisses me off. But hey, what are you going to do? Well, with Disney, that's the thing, because sometimes I feel like I don't know if you guys had this at Disneyland, but we before the stitch ride, it was the the alien attack. Like you would go sit in this theater and the fucking xenomorph would come out and like the lights would go out and you feel it like whipping your legs and shit. And it'd be all these strobe lights and at Disneyland at Disney World. What? Yeah, it was, the, a xenomorph? It was the it was the alien attack ride. You never went out. It wasn't right. It was like a show. Now Fucking it's Stitch. Florida. Stitch does it. Yeah, they took the Xenomorph out. And now Stitch is in there. And so. now they own the Xenomorph again. Yeah. Fucking cocks. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe they didn't have that in Disneyland. That sucks. No. Like that was so fucking terrifying. Like as a little kid, like, and I don't know why my mom like took me out. I like, why would I want to be on that as a little kid? And it's like spitting and shit. It was so scary. Like it doesn't come out of the thing. Like it stands in like this, I don't know. Glass case of there. emotion. Yeah. Yeah. You have to Google it. I'm sure somebody has a, a really bad camcorder recording yeah. of it. <laughs> That's how I watched the Gremlins and uh, Beetlejuice ride, whatever. But uh, uh, just on the topic of aliens, uh, if you want memory, the origin of Alien is on Crackle for free right now. It's a pretty damn decent documentary. It doesn't get into all of the issues of the movie, but if you want like a good broad strokes way of starting it, that's probably the best documentary you're going to find on Alien. We all know how fucking obsessed I am with that franchise. So hot dog. I kind of regret that comment. I made a few uh, podcasts ago where I'm like, oh, Alien. I like it more than Alien. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I think I opened up a can of hormigas. Uh, what? No, that's a completely valid position because like, actually I was talking with Chad about it recently because Chad and I had done the original. He's going to be joining me on the Blob episode for the Patreon bonus. We talked about the logistics of coming back for Aliens and then Alien 3 and Resurrection and each one has its own merits. I think that Alien is the most groundbreaking and so you know how we often talk about the lowest common denominator, especially on this show, like what gets mm -hmm. everybody, right? I think when you're groundbreaking, you get everybody in the sense that you're hooking everybody the same way. That subversion mm -hmm. of expectation, that kind of pulling you in catches everybody. And so especially Alien, the first one hooks everybody in such a way where you get kind of the best of everything. And then each other one is so uniquely genre specific to like even Re Alien Resurrection, where you have the dude who did Delicatessen did it. So Doug, as an as a, an official obsessive of the Xenomorphs, I give you permission to prefer Aliens. Well, I mean, if you want to ask me my favorite one out of all of them, it's Alien 3, to be so honest. So fucking good. I have to defend that movie. People shit on it very, very unfairly. Oh, they do. But can you tell me a scarier scene than I honestly, I find it really disturbing. Like when, what was it? Uh, Lance Henriksen. He's like that broken robot. And, he, and he's just sitting there. He's like, he's like, yeah, just unplug me. I'm off. I'm like, oh man, this is, this is disturbing. Dude. I think one of the best scenes in cinema is the disgusting scene where Ash is trying to penetrate Ripley with the rolled up magazine. And it's, this, oh. it's so fucking foul and uncomfortable. And then the first time you see it and he gets a head hit and the milk comes out. I mean, it's just disgusting and gross. And at that time, you know, I had played a lot of metal slug and stuff. And so if you play like the censored version of metal slug, it's milk. If you play the other version, it's blood. And so 
I was thinking of like metal slug. It electrocuted my brain. That's like one of the scariest things. And it's so funny because it doesn't involve the alien. Yeah, no, true. I, yeah, that honestly, have okay. Have you played Alien Isolation, the PS3 and PS4 game? No, it's it's that's actually a really good game. And um, the, the scariest thing besides the alien, because all it is, is you wandering around just trying to be quiet. That's when we have the microphone, right? Where you have the microphone, yeah. But the androids are the scariest thing in that game. Yep. For you people out there, download Alien Isolation. It's a good survival horror game. So if you like like the new Resident Evil games, yeah, is a good one. Well, honestly, like the Prometheus and Covenant, if you watch those and you ignore all the people and you focus on David, that's it, mm-hmm. a really interesting, good movie. Like I think that those, I mean, because visually they're beautiful, right? But story-wise, they're kind of shit. But if you look at it and you don't involve the human element, you involve just the android, I think they're pretty decent. So before we get to our interview with Dr. Chris Impey, I have to say the Caravan of Courage and Ewoks, the Battle for Endor, easiest adaptations into horror ever. Watch those movies. They're pretty scary. Sindel, she's going to get impregnated by Ewok facehuggers, if you catch my meaning. It's not nice. Mm-hmm. They're a little too friendly. They need to stay at arm's length and social distance. But I will hit you now. Dr. Chris Impey is a fucking genius. He's incredibly smart, much smarter than myself. And I talked to him about what scares him about the cosmos, black holes, buttholes, everything in between. Enjoy my talk with Dr. Chris Impey, certified genius, author of like 17,000 books, and a guy who definitely puts me in my place intellectually. All right, this is Slashers, at least the interview portion of the show. I'm still not entirely sure how to introduce. My name is Jake, and with me for the first time is my new friend, Chris Impey, uh, Dr. Chris Impey. Sir, how are you today? I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, glad to be on your show. I'm thrilled to have you. You know, I love anything that gives me an excuse to just go down a black hole of research on the internet, and you are incredibly distinguished. 17 books, tons of scholarly articles. I watched lectures. I watched little mini documentaries. Uh, I was enamored with your teaching of Tibetan monks, which is uh, fascinating. And so I'm not exactly entirely sure where to start, except um, I guess when we had reached out via email was, I'm dumb. And I think that a lot of people are dumb compared to you because you're kind of a super genius. And I think that we don't even know what to be afraid of. So in terms of astrobiology, astronomy, what are some of the things that like frighten or bewilder your brain? Right. I mean, so I guess there's two levels of fear. There's for people who study things, you can be afraid of complexity or difficult ideas or I mean, most uh, graduate students in my subject, they have to take a course in general relativity. You can't get through grad school without. Now, that's obviously very hard. So I would say that course alone induces fear in most graduate students. (laughs) Yeah. The prospect of general relativity. I mean, most astronomers don't use it in their daily lives. So it's just like a ritual hazing that astronomy students get where they have to master. Oh, yeah. As an attorney, we had the rule against perpetuities. Never tested on my bar exam or anything, but I still had to dedicate hours of my life to just bashing my head against a book. So I totally empathize. Right. So there's there's scary concepts and ideas. And, you know, scientists should not be too afraid of those. And then there are just things in the universe that you can legitimately be scared of. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, I suppose generally people over worry about some of these things. They get an idea of something, you know, so I spend more time debunking or batting away fears than I do accentuating them or saying, yeah, you're right to be worried about that. Like, okay, black holes is a classic example. Oh, so yeah. people are pretty trying to black holes. And it's sure, if you were close to one, big problem. I mean, the spaghettification process, 
I don't know how we can calibrate it on a pain scale, but it's beyond any pain scale because you're being, you know, you're not just being pulled apart like a stretch Armstrong doll being pulled at your feet and your head. You're being spaghettified at the level of fibers and bones and molecules ah. simultaneously on every scale. So that has got to be extremely unpleasant. So it's fair to be afraid of that. But as a practical matter, black holes are just really rare. I mean, only about one in 10,000, one in 50,000 stars dies that way. And so therefore, logically, in the nearby universe, you're very unlikely to run into one. And then the nearest black hole turns out is about a thousand light years away. We have, star- we have stars that are five or 10 light years away. So you have to go a long way to run into one. You're not going to stumble upon a black hole, even if we were able to leave the solar system. So that's a, a not a practical concern. And they don't roam around black holes. I mean, stars, <laughs> stars move through space, yeah. of course. We're all sort of on a merry-go-round of the Milky Way galaxy, the stars near the sun, and they have random motions. But these are, oh, for hundreds of thousands of years, they don't tend to bring stars close to each other. So you're not going to run into one either. Not going to pop up behind you or anything, yeah. No. So black holes are a good thing not to be scared of. You probably remember there was a fear, a little fear storm in Europe when the Large Hadron Collider was upgraded. People oh, thought, yeah. oh, it could make a black hole. It can compress matter so much, it will be a black hole, which will fall to the center of the Earth and then consume the Earth and eat us all up and so on. And the physicists, I mean, they kind of laughed really loud and hard about that fear. But actually, it, in Europe, it got spread enough that the, the governor general of CERN and the governing body just said, look, look, you, you've got to do a research study on this and publish it and then go to the press with it and reassure everyone. We know it's not going to happen, but go ahead and oh, yeah. work it out and write it up. And they did. So they've written it up and, and, and we're, we're away from making a black hole ourselves through our technology by orders of magnitude, like we're tens or hundreds of thousands of times too stupid to make a black hole. We just don't have the technology. So that's another black hole fear you can take off the worry pile. And that's hilarious because it's almost as if you had like an astrobiologist, somebody like coming out with an article, the boogeyman does not exist and having right. citations to it. Now, you had written uh, Einstein's Monsters, The Life and Times of Black Holes. I love yeah. that title because yeah. it has that salacious science horror element. But also, like you've talked about in other lectures most of what you study might be a billion light years away. So there's a certain degree of space. There's a a wall between you and the subject matter that keeps you safe at night. But in terms of going back to spaghettification and these terrors, uh, in terms of like the vastness or the power of a black hole, uh, can you think of anything that rivals that even on an exponential basis? No, because they're, I mean, it's the ultimate... um travesty of space-time. I mean, they, they can destroy space-time, essentially. So Van Horizon, <laughs> Horizon is, a, is a boundary to nothing, to something that you can't understand and you can never get information out of, you can't get out of if you fall in. And then, you know, in terms of the conceptual scary stuff, supposedly there's a singularity at the center of a black hole. That's what the theory said, the simple theory, that it goes is an infinite density of matter, everything squashed to a point at the center of the black hole. And that's that's sort of not scary, but it's a problem to physicists because it doesn't make sense in physics to say that. And so Stephen Hawking had a nice phrase for this. He said, black holes contain the seeds of their own demise, which means the theory of black holes, which did come from Einstein, includes problems that have not yet been resolved. And we just have to say, okay, well, we probably don't have quite good enough theory yet. So there's some unsolved issues with black holes. The information paradox is one. The nature of the singularity is another. 
And so in terms of, yeah, what's happening to space-time, it's really extreme in a black hole. And, and it's not fully understood. It would be a mistake, even though we've detected black holes and big ones, small ones, medium-sized ones. We have very powerful tools for investigating them. We don't understand them completely at all. Yeah, and I've read a lot of articles online that talk about like the almost metaphysical nature of them, it, the manipulation of time and obviously the perception of the same. I compare it to the Sarlacc pit in Return of the Jedi because Jabba the Hutt's like, oh, yeah, you'll be digested over a thousand years. I'm like, no, I won't. I'll die of starvation in like two days. And, you know, but then when you think about like the fact that the laws of the universe might change as it's happening, you literally might survive spaghettification, at least. Con- I, that just blows my mind. It, I'm way too stupid to understand that. Well, and also the, the perception of the witness to this event and the person experiencing it are different. So if you fell into a black hole, I mean, you just imagine it's a really big black hole. So big black holes are not, ironically not as scary as the dead star black holes because the spaghettification doesn't happen. The, the, the strength of the gravity absolutely is high, but the stretching force is less because in a big black hole, that's just how it works out. So you could survive passage into a big black hole like the one at the center of our galaxy. But if you did that, you would go in through the event horizon to an unknown fate and nobody knows what it would be like. But to a witness outside, you would never get there. You would take forever to get to the event horizon. Your light would be stretched or redshifted or reduced in energy. And you'd just be this frozen image at the event horizon. It would take forever for you to get there. And eventually the person watching would just get bored and go home, of course. I'm not not going to watch that like paint drying. Um, But yet, ironically, you will have passed into the black hole to an unknown fate. So both things are true according to relativity. Yeah, that's kind of like romantically tragic and also deathly terrifying. I love it. Yeah. And another, so- I, I gave another example of a fear that we can debunk or that's a legitimate thing to think about is the, the stuff that comes up every now and then about near earth objects and, oh, there's an asteroid going to pass close by the earth or whatever. And what if it hits us? Yeah. Um, that's a legitimate concern because of course it has happened in the past we know every hundred million years or so a big thing slams into the earth and causes a mass extinction pretty much as we a big that. dinosaur fan yeah I, th- I think of extinctions like they happen every other day albeit spaced out by millions of years <laughs> so we know it's happening and every now and then there's a little scare of a more modest sized object that they could still cause real damage at like the level of a city or a small country and, and so we see, you know, we think, oh, what would happen? And it seems like it's reasonable to be scared. But I mean, that's mitigated by the fact that space is just huge. Yeah. So the objects that fly through space are throwing, flying through vastness of space. And all the stuff that's in our vicinity, it has incredibly low chance of actually hitting us because space is so big. It's just a simple math thing like that. And then you say, well, okay, it is going to happen at some point. And it's random. You don't know how to predict when. But we've got that actually figured out. I mean, the rocket scientists, you know, have learned some tricks over the years. And one of the tricks we've read about is that we've rendezvoused with comets, for example, and sampled asteroids. You know, we've done that now more than a couple of times. And that same technology that lets us go hundreds of millions of miles and rendezvous or land on an asteroid or or take some sample from a comet would also let us go to something heading our way, attach uh, a spacecraft to it with rockets and you essentially use a sideways kick to change its trajectory. Yeah. And if you do that with enough advance notice, like months or years, you actually would have that much time. It's not going to be like a movie where the clock is ticking down and you've got 10 minutes to do it. 
if you have plenty of time, that's not hard. I mean, we know how to do that. So the same technology that brings back samples of comets and asteroids would save us if we found one heading towards us. And just the minor degrees that you would have to manipulate. When you have that amount of distance, you could have one one thousandth of one degree. But when you project it across, it, it misses us by a million miles if you do it far enough in advance. So yeah, that's pretty I awesome. Mean, it's, like, it's a very watered down version of it. But if you like play pool and you're doing one, a really hard shot across the full diagonal, you know, you only have to be off a tiny bit and you've completely missed the shot. So you're just kind of, you know, get that little deliberate miss and it's not that hard. You don't need huge rockets or much technology to do it. Pretty simple. It's not as sexy as giant explosions, but it does add a reassurance that I'm fond of because I don't want space shrapnel still hitting my planet and causing damage. Right. And that's the Dr. Strangelove issue. You don't, you you want, (laughs) You want the NASA scientists to do this, not the Department of Defense, because the DOD people will say, well, we've got all these nukes we're not using. We, we should just blast that sucker. And yeah, the shrapnel, you know, laws of physics are a bitch. And the, the shrapnel is coming in exactly the same direction and speed as, all, as the big piece was. And so you just got a bunch of shrapnel hitting all over the earth and taking out cities or towns rather than all doing one country. In. Yeah, it's absolutely psychotically scary. Another thing that scares me, solar flares. People talk about basically all of technology in existence being eradicated and just it was as if it never was. I don't know if that's in your area of expertise with observational cosmology. Do you do you dabble in the solar flares? It's not what I work on, but I I'm sort of have to know about it too, you know, have to have some bread. Oh yeah, solar flares. I mean, we experience periodic disruptions of satellites and technology just on the solar cycle. You know, every 22 years, the sun goes through a cycle. And when it's at its peak of activity, when there's tons of sunspots, we're far from that now, another 10 years away. Um, It's a problem, but it's not a huge problem. The things that people talk about that are a big problem are super flares, and they can happen. They're on century timescales. And the last one was actually 1965. And it out the north a lot of the North American grid, for instance, Canada especially and, and the northeast of the US. And as far as a super a super super flare, there hasn't been one in the modern era of technology. There was one in the mid 19th century, I think. You know, okay. but that was before the grid. That was before electricity was widespread, uh, and it caused problems. It took out the early telegraph systems and so on. I mean, it melted them. So there were. You know, the, the original telegraph systems oh, existed and those things were just a little melted, blasted by it. So the tricky thing is that we haven't, they, the flares are, the super flares are rare enough that we haven't had one in the era of computers and satellites and modern technology. We don't actually know how bad it would be, but it would be bad. Yeah, that's like a, a much more tangible threat than Y2K, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which and is it's strange. not, it's not really predictable. I mean, the sun is our nearest star. We monitor it we measure everything we can we, we we you know we control the sun pretty well but the things that trigger super flares are not known they're not understood well enough because they come from the interior sun mechanics and energy production and and it's not obvious what causes them because they're not periodic it's not like the solar cycle which is just like the tides it goes in and out and changes the big events that are sporadic they're not regular so you they're not predictable which is great. In the middle of this podcast, all of our technology could just go poof, which is, I would right. love to be a caveman again. It sounds so exciting with my predilection for horror movies and digital content. Ugh. And the other fear that, the, the other rational fear that goes along with that is if it happens and we weren't ready because we couldn't predict it. I mean, actually, we will be able to predict it in the sense that when, if the sun, you know, 
perps loud and bad, um, that information, it comes as high energy particles, not as light. If it was light, you'd have eight minutes to get oh, ready. Because that's how long light takes to get rough from the sun. The high energy particles are not traveling at light speed. It's a bit slower. So you have a couple of hours. That's all. Oh, of and I guess the scare scenario going with that is if people didn't really anticipate it or around the world, people didn't know what it caused it, it might be misperceived as a nuclear strike by our enemy. And each side might think the same thing. So it could trigger a nuclear conflagration in a really uncomfortable way. Um, and this is not a, a random fear. So in 1965, there, there are things out there called gamma ray bursts, which yeah. are the most powerful explosions in the universe. They're, they're sort of massive, start detonating and sending out this incredible shockwave of gamma rays as a jet actually themed. And created found, the Incredible Hulk, right? I know science. Yeah. So this is, this is, these are big natural explosions. And again, they're very rare, so they're very far away. But in 1965, uh, the first gamma ray satellites that had ever been launched were up there not to find these gamma ray bursts, these astronomy things. They were looking down to see compliance with the test ban treaty. So the nuclear test ban treaty in 1965 was designed to monitor U.S. and Russian blasts in the atmosphere to make sure no one was cheating. Yeah. In that time, soon after the launch of the satellites, they started to detect gamma ray bursts. And, there were, you know, it only got declassified fairly recently because it's 50 years ago, I guess. But there was close to a red, you know, on the button type incident because each side thought the other was cheating on the nuclear test ban treaty. And then eventually the scientists that running the satellite said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. It seems to be coming from space, not from the earth. Yeah. And then they figured out slowly what it was. So you can get faked into a nuclear war by some astrophysics you don't understand. That's absolutely terrifying. And also, again, kind of goes to your earlier point. You don't want Dr. Strange love. You definitely want the scientists in control. But right. I, I don't I, I have a hard time believing that a scientist would ever put their finger on the red button with, you know, logic and the resources of, you know, their brain to, at their disposal. Speaking of brains, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about intelligent life in the universe. You yourself are a of counsel for the messaging extraterrestrial intelligence group, METI. Uh, can you talk yeah. about how you even go about talking to aliens? Sure. I mean, we don't know, of course. Um, so there, there, as you know, there's, there's these two related activities, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence that's been going since 1960 with radio telescopes and also with uh, telescopes looking for optical pulses. They figure intelligent aliens will have radio transmitters. So we look for radio pulses and they should have lasers too. So they look for optical pulses and that's just listening. But METI is more deliberate. It's intentional messaging, targeting maybe stars where we think they're Earth-like planets because we've found hundreds of Earth-like planets now. So we know where there are places there could be life and possibly intelligent life. Yeah. We know where to communicate in all the hundreds of millions of stars in the galaxy. And the strategy is the main question. You know, how do you communicate with aliens of unknown function and form? You know, you can't assume any natural language. You can't assume grammar or syntax. You can't assume any of those things that we just take for granted in language. So, of course, people end up with patterns in math and, uh, you know, sort of artificial patterns that an alien would know could not just come from noise. And then there's debate about whether you should do it at all. As you may know, Stephen Hawking, yep. before he died, was very vocal about saying, no, we shouldn't do that. They might have ill intent and we don't want them to know we're here. 
you know, not just that we're here, but also that we're troubled adolescents that are kind of screwing up our own planet and might not even survive. We really want, you know, some much more advanced technology and civilization to know about us and decide, yeah, we're kind of vermin or we're not, we're not really good for the galaxy and then they'll take action. So he said that. And, and so the Medi group, you know, seriously discussed that and, and they don't do things cavalierly. They don't just rush off and send out messages. It goes through a whole process and it has to sort of be internationally approved and so on. Yeah, it reminds me of Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, where he says, you know, your scientists were so uh, preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't think if they should. Right. And that's one of the things that's so frustrating is there's so much interesting media that's based on the idea of like poking the bear and backfiring like Mars Attacks. It's a great movie. It's completely inane and ridiculous. But the idea of we reach out to them with open arms and they just want to zap us because we're annoying. Uh, I think you're right. very right in that like impestuous adolescent phase. We can't deal with our terrestrial wars. We certainly don't want to in invite the Star War, right? Right. Although, you know, so I, so I, that does become a fear. But again, I think it's, it's, not, it does, it's not zero. It's, if you think of it as a risk, what is the risk if you're communicating out into space? You know, distances of hundreds of light years, which laws of physics hold. There's no warp drives. You're dealing with people that even if they got a message, it'll take them centuries or millennia to get here, yeah. by which time they have better weapons and better tools. But, you know, what is the real risk of doing that? And you'd have to say that objectively is pretty difficult. We might not even be on this planet anymore. We might have relocated further into the cosmos and terraformed or something, right? Yeah. So, so they use that logic to say, well, let's, why not do it? Let's do it. I mean, the safer thing to do, of course, is just to listen and not to speak. Yeah. What's but, your favorite depiction of an extraterrestrial in cinema? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, mine is actually not in cinema, it's in a book. It's in Fred Hoyle's The Dark Cloud. So Fred Hoyle is a famous astrophysicist and, and he wrote science fiction. Um, uh, wonderful science fiction, but it's clever and well thought out. And he wrote a book in like 59 or 60 called The Dark Cloud. And he hypothesized interstellar intelligence, like, you know, an interstellar gas cloud that had complex molecules that had somehow on a very slow timescale compared to how it happened on the Earth. Yeah. That gathered itself to make complexity and basic forms of life and networking information and eventually the equivalent of a big brain in an interstellar cloud. So I kind of, because most science fiction is just laughably anthropocentric, it's so, you know, like, is that the best you can come up? You've got yeah. a bipedal, a bipedal humanoid with bad skin. Like, come on, is that the best you can do? Guy in a latex suit? Yeah. It, yeah aliens are going to be weirder and more unrecognizable and more strange than we can imagine. And yes. an interstellar cloud is is my favorite because I think that's not what we usually think of. My favorite depiction is The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. Very, very similar, which is just this event. There's no purpose. There's no rhyme or reason. Everything just, you know, there's this spatial, you know, anomaly that crash lands and it just kind of ruins everything. And I love that there's no deliberateness. I think that it's almost reassuring to think that there's an enemy, like a, a, like a conscious enemy on the other side or somebody to interact with. We wouldn't be speaking the same language. We might have even have like the same sensory organs to understand what we're saying to one another, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then the other reasonable depictions, I think, are in, if you're talking about a superior, superior being and technology, you can always imagine their shape shifters and so on. So I, yeah. I like even in Star Trek. That's a good, you know, a mischievous, super intelligent 
being that kind of just messes with you all the time. That's I kind of like that one, too. Well, it definitely fits with the idea of being hyper advanced. If they're talking to us at all, except to subjugate us, it almost would have to be like a novelty, like the way I think a lot of people look at zoo animals of like, oh, look how quaint. And so I, I always love Q for that reason. But, you know, in terms of astrobiology and what we've observed in the universe, is there any kind of like physical form that you think that would be I guess, better adapted for just kind of general space life, like, you know, having an exoskeleton or something to that effect? Um, I mean, the thing we're learning with exoplanets is the habitable exoplanets are not, the the majority numerically are not going to be planets like the Earth. They're actually going to be these ocean worlds where there's a cap, the the ocean is subterranean, or it's under a cap of rock or ice, because that actually gives you a larger set of habitable places like moons in the outer solar system could be habitable by microbes. So the open question, of course, is, is are any, do any of them actually get biology, even though they have the ingredients and a lot of time? Uh, and then the question is, could more advanced life actually evolve in that kind of an environment or does it need to be in a place like ours? And nobody knows, but if you want to speculate about unusual forms of life, you could just imagine what might emerge in these ocean, these subterranean ocean worlds, of which there are tens of billions in the galaxy a lot. So something interesting is bound to have happened on some of them. Oh, yeah. And I, I recently learned about the Purple Earth Hypothesis, which was that, you know, Earth eons ago had retinal-based plant life, which changed the atmosphere with oxygen instead of having chlorophyll-based plant life. So now there's like a push for astronomers to look and try and see purple planets as well. It is it daunting to try and keep up with all of these new theorems and the new access to information that the internet has had? Because you have been kind of at the forefront of, you know, technological education since as far back as the 90s, from what I could tell online. Yeah, no, it's hard to keep up. I mean, astrobiology, especially the exoplanet game is is going very fast. And there's a lot of new tools and ideas. And, And the trap is always the same one. It's being too anthropocentric, just looking at everything through the prism of the earth and the history of the earth and our form of life and our form of biology. I don't know. It's hard to think outside the box. I mean, the classic example is NASA, who get criticized for all sorts of things. But, you know, if you want to make a multi-billion dollar mission of a very fancy rover and send it to Mars and look for life, which you want to do, um, if you make it customized to look for our form of life, nucleic acids and storing information in protein sequences and so on, you can do that. You can make a mission that asks that question and answers it, but it will miss an alternative form of life. So you can either ask a very well-tailored, narrow question and get a definitive answer, yes or no, or you can have a problem where you define life so widely and broadly, you don't even know what it looks like. So how do you test for it? And that's the conundrum NASA has. You know, they are only going to get money from Congress and get scientists on board if they can answer a question. And the question tends to be a little close to our form of life. So astronomers have very little idea of how to approach strange life. You know, life as we do not know. What does that look like? Yeah. And in terms of, I guess, through NASA and talking about these opportunities to do these very expensive missions, being in the public consciousness as a viable scientific endeavor has got to be difficult because I think that very often with astronomy and astrobiology, you're proving the negative. You're you're ruling out an, uh, you know an option. You know that's stricken. We can move on to the next thing because you literally will never have enough resources to cast a wide enough net to guarantee a result. Right. Right. 
and you have to take some chances. So, you know, science is a little conservative. It's, it is because it's competitive and you have to get funding and you have to pay your students and do public papers and that costs money. Everything costs money. So it ends up being a little conservative. You, yeah. you can't do wild hypothesizing in a proposal because you just get laughed out of the room and you won't get funded, even if it's a good idea. So the problem with our mechanism of big science now is that it's got a little conservative. It may work. It's good. We get vaccines. We get uh, fancy satellites and space missions. But we don't ask some very deep questions or out-of-the-box questions. We're not really good at that. So theorists can do that. People who work with just the math and the physics, they're able to do that. But people who actually do experiments and observations are, you know, if you're talking about strange life, it's a good, another example in astrobiology, the biochemistry uh, from the, just from the bio, biomedical or biological side is very poorly researched. There's almost no money to research alternative forms of life. Like how different could biochemistry be if you had different ingredients, say Titan, ethane, methane, a little water, a little ammonia. Well, that's hydrocarbons. You could get something interesting happening in Titan, weird form of life. Let's go and do an experiment. Let's do lab experiments. And it's almost none of that going on because it's not leading to a new drug. It's not going to cure a disease. All the biochemists are busy working on other things and you can't get money for it. So some very interesting questions and research projects related to astrobiology are just not being done. And do you think that's frustrating with like the public zeitgeist when it comes to the perception of science fiction? It is so rarely experimental or exploratory. Like I'm a big fan of Star Trek. I'm a big fan of the Fantastic Four when it isn't an A plot to to vanquish the Gorn. I like where you're exploring. I love those elements. Is it frustrating that you don't see a greater amount of that? Because even when you do, lots of times it ends up where, you know, you you shouldn't have done it. You tempted fate and now you're dead in a spaceship floating through space in a lot of movies. Yeah, I think that the the problem, there's a big plus and a big minus with science fiction, popular culture view of life beyond Earth. I mean, the plus is that those parts of the entertainment industry from, you know, books, to movies, to TV shows, have explored lots of wild ideas and crazy ideas, and they've done it really well. You know, great CGI, great effects, wonderful movies. I, I love most of those. I grew up on that. Um, but it's not very realistic. It's not very likely to be what the universe has provided or made. Um, so there's a disconnect, and it's sort, of, it's sort of primed the public to expect that. You know, they're going to be disappointed if we go to these other planets or some remote sense them and all we ever find are microbes, like, okay, yawn, front page news for a week, and then everyone goes back to their big news story of the day. So the universe is not going to be quite as exciting in the research in the next decades, I think, as people are expecting. But also, I think the reason this stuff resonates with the average people, or even people who don't particularly like science fiction, is that it's keying into something a little different. I mean, like well, Spielberg's a good example because his classic science fiction movies were biblical stories, just very lightly veiled. E.T. Yeah. is the Christ story. Close Encounters, he goes into the mothership in the crucifix position. I mean, sometimes Spielberg ladles it on even a bit thick, but these yeah. are just metaphorical, biblical transpositions of aliens onto us, and it's clear what it means, and all the movie movies dichotomize into you know aliens as redeemers and salvation or destroyers and retribution for our sins it's just biblical right it's a pure religious metaphor and you know it's done in science fiction and it's done lightly you don't always notice it but that's a lot of that a lot of it is that 
Yeah. That's more about us and our hopes and fears than it is about what's going on in the universe. Exactly. Because we're impressing upon it. And like, that's the biggest thing I talk about is, you know, especially I, mean, I talk to a lot of filmmakers and creators and stuff. And if nobody ever sees your content, you know, what is it still valid? And I think it kind of goes to astrobiology as well. If we're only looking for something that strikes us on this criteria, are we going to wholly disregard something that could be you know, for lack of a better term, magical. And that's something that's really disappointing when you think about, you know, like if we saw a trilobite from a different planet, that's thrilling. But Kim Kardashian's butt is likely to make a bigger headline than that. And that's, right. oh, yeah. Well, and also, it, the, you know, you end up having to look in the mirror a little. So if we, you know, just hypothetically, we're so far from it, it's not going to happen. But say we found a nearby Earth-like planet, maybe it's Proxima Centauri, so it's really close. And eventually we get super resolving telescopes that can actually inspect the planet. Or maybe you send these nanobots with breakthrough star shot, and it takes a few decades, but we get it. And then we find there are bizarre, you know, it's oceans, and we find amazing forms of life. And, and essentially we find something that's pretty close to a dolphin, you know, and it's like, and it seems to be very intelligent. And if we found that on an alien planet, we'd be amazed and, and surprised and, and it would be, it would be wonderful. Um, and we'd be so grateful to have that new thing, but we already have dolphins, right? And we're just busy sort of killing them and fishing nets yep. and destroying their ocean, you know? So like, why don't you just enjoy the amazing forms of life you have on this planet rather than going crazy trying to find new forms of life? I always love movies like Sphere and Underwater, where yeah. you're basically using cosmology, but talking about something that's here, that's tangible, because so much of what we do have is unexplored. Yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't maybe touch on that you think might inspire fear and awe in the audience? Well, in the cosmology, just finishing the cosmology realm, um, obviously, we're in an ever-expanding universe. Yes. And that seems to be the the dark energy, even if we don't know what it is, the accelerating universe, that, that's a real thing. That's been so, you, you know, everything's galloping away faster and faster. And it, it's not fear, maybe, but loneliness. Um, the universe is eventually, you know, going to disappear. That We won't be able to see anything in some millions of years. And then beyond that, our galaxy is going to go dark. And there won't be any stars. And we'll be living in this dark husk of a galaxy after we merge with Andromeda. So a few billion years after that. Uh, so the lights will go out, the galaxy will evaporate, space-time's expanded to the point where there's nothing else there. And, you know, that's a kind of a bleak prospect. You know, we'd kind of hope for better out of all this, you know, yeah. like if that's, if that's the whole agenda, that's the whole enterprise, and that's how it goes down. That's kind of not much fun. I mean, I'm not, it's more bleak than frightening, but it's also frightening. Nobody likes the dark. And when the dark is all there is, well, that's a little frightening. Yeah. In terms of bleakness, I, I'm a huge proponent of like, you know, fringe horror constituting as horror. The scariest episode of the Twilight Zone is Henry Bemis sitting there alone, not being able to see in the, the oh. nuclear wasteland. Right. And it's not that it's overtly scary. It's the fact that it's this like hopeless husk of a of a man going on. And that's very true. Like, you know, as we stampede forward, we're also getting farther apart to the point of complete dissolution, unless it's like men in black and we're all in a big marble and stuff hits the outside of the marble and starts bouncing in. Right. Right. Or unless, <laughs> un unless we're in the simulation and the, oh, yep. and the simulators decide to just flick on the happy switch and, and make us feel better. Yeah. Or the machines that are harvesting us for our very minimal bioenergy and stuff like the Matrix. I love it all. I'm a, a big fan. 
Yeah, I, I, I could accept any of those outcomes, actually. <laughs> it's better than long, nothing, right? As long as it's not boring. You exactly. Know? Let's keep things interesting, even if we're just batteries. Right. Now, I want to thank you for coming on. I know that, like yeah, I said, sure. it came out of nowhere. Uh, but you were my ideal audience, or excuse me, my ideal subject to talk about because you know, you're an educator. You have been heralded uh, for your research skills. And you're a hugely empathetic person from what I can tell. And I want to end with this quote that I had from you that I thought was pretty perfect and kind of depicts the way I view the universe. Uh, you had said uh, that the light of stars and galaxies are like jewels set on a dark velvet backdrop. And there's this churning sea of dark. And I love that churning sea of dark where it is beautiful, but you just aren't quite sure if Jaws is going to get you at the end of it, right? Yeah, it's beautiful and unsettling, as is everything good in life. Even a poem should be beautiful and unsettling. Everything that we like should be beautiful and unsettling, like your, your kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly true. Now, my audience can find you at chrismp-astronomy.com, and I'll make sure to include links to that and everything else in the episode description. Uh, any closing remarks to the mutant goons from beyond? No, I mean, I, you know, if you're thinking of the universe, please, please do. You know, I mean, I, I encourage existential angst, you know, into your life at least once a day. Make it be about the universe. Don't be afraid of, you know, rats in the neighborhood or someone mugging you. Be afraid of, you know, the big rip and the expanding universe. That's a, that's a rational and sensible thing to be afraid of. Awesome. We are back. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Honestly, I'm just shocked that the doc would even be willing to sit with me. It was awesome. I had emailed him and he was like, but why me? And I was like, because I think that it's important that people understand that there are things in the unknown that are, it comes to the known unknowns. Like I know that aliens would be scary, but I don't know necessarily like what electromagnetic fields could do or, or any of these other things. So just know that outside space is scary. Now, Adrian, if I wanted to put shit on my body, on my tote bags, on my head in the form of a hat. How would I do that if I wanted that specific shit to be slashers orientated? Okay, we'll just go to our slasherspod.redbubble.com. Jake has a lot, lot of fun new designs on there, guys, especially our Mars Rats t-shirt, which I adore. So please make sure you visit that website. There's a million things. You get hats, t-shirts, mugs, travel mugs. I think we have onesies on there. Yeah, <laughs> that is correct. Baby. <laughs> so just check it out. There's a lot of stuff on there you guys will really enjoy. And Doug, let's say I'm sitting there and I'm like, God damn it, this Jake guy needs to shut up and I hate him. How can I avoid him? What show can I watch you on on Friday nights? All right. Well, Friday night action at 8 p.m. on Roku B-Movie TV. Because there are a bunch of great action and exploitation films. The film we're showing uh, this coming week, it's a real good one. And it has one of my favorite people in there, Clint Howard. Well, what do you mean? I'm uh, So if you like Clint Howard, here's a really rare, obscure movie. But yeah, check me out at Doug Bizarro. Um, we got some good stuff lined up for you. What about you, Jake? I know you host a show on there, too, right? I host Saturday Night Terrors on Saturdays. So if you want to avoid Doug like the plague, why don't you come hang out with me? We have tons of schlocky horror. Sometimes I get into some action, but sometimes Doug and I, you know, we uh, we'll do a little swingers party, put our keys in a fishbowl and I end up on a Friday night action. He ends up on a Saturday night terror. Maybe one day we'll get Adrian in on there. If you found us through Saturday night terrors, please let us know. We're through Friday night action. We would love to know who you are and how we can reward you from taking the plunge of going from the Roku to the podcast. So with that being said, my name is Jake for Doug and Adrian saying goodbye and good die. 
I almost said my Saturday Night Terror send off, which would have been embarrassing. Oh, yeah, that's a good way to make a little cameo in there. So, hey goons, you should be like totally grateful that this episode came out on time. Jake is having to use his shared backup computer's backup to edit this because he is cursed with technological demons from the abyss of cyber hell. Oh, that reminds me. I am Cyberslash1000 and the hidden track for this week is Hey Sunshine. The name of the band is making me feel generally pessimistic. Aw oh, man. Anyway, the song is called Rot. Follow them at all the links in the episode description. You can also get a lime green cassette of this song that matches my slimy face. Juicy.
that. I guess you're not down to play the White Rabbit in San Antonio. Well, I 